Kubernetes has evolved from a nascent project within Google to a thriving ecosystem of cloud providers, open source projects, and engineers. Tim Hawken is a principal software engineer who has been with Google for 15 years. Tim joins the show to talk about the early days of the Kubernetes projects and the engineering efforts that are underway five years into Kubernetes. At KubeCon EU 2019, two of the prevalent subjects of discussion were service mesh and serverless, particularly the Knative project. Tim gave his perspective for how different projects that are adjacent to Kubernetes are developed within the community. We have a new version of Software Daily, our iOS app, available in the iOS App Store. The Android version will be up soon. Software Daily is a place to access all 1,000 of our episodes in one place. You can find all the shows related to a particular technology, such as streaming data or cryptocurrencies or Kubernetes. You can connect with other listeners through the comments section. You can access our transcripts and our related links to each episode. Everything in the app is free, although you can also become an ad-free listener or support the show for $10 a month or $100 a year by going to softwaredaily.com slash subscribe, and we're booking sponsorships in addition to that. If you are interested in advertising on the show, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor, and we're hiring two interns for software engineering and business development. If you're interested in either of those positions, send an email with your resume to jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com with internship in the subject line. Tim Hawkins, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Good to be here. You've been at Google for 15 years. Every engineer who I've talked to from Google has a crazy story about early days of engineering at Google. Give me a crazy story about scaling Google that I won't hear from anyone else. About scale in Google. Scaling uh, Google. Scaling Google. So yes, I have been here for a very long time. When I started, the entire like platform and SRE team was like half of a floor of a building. And so I wasn't on the SRE team. I wasn't working on search at the time, but I was able to observe it very closely firsthand. So I've seen a lot of firefights, a lot of really interesting bugs that nobody but Google would hit. The sort of bugs that happen, you know, one in a million run hours, we would hit every day. And it gave us a really interesting opportunity, especially around kernel bugs, to reproduce things that had existed in the wild for a long time, but nobody had been able to track down because we had a very large fleet of very homogenous workloads that like, if there's a bug in that kernel, we're going to find it. And so it was always a lot of fun to dig down. I'm a low level person, so I like to dig in at those levels. And before that, you were at Sun Microsystems. You spent five years at Sun from 1999 to 2004. How did your experience at Sun contrast with Google? Sun is a, was a very different company. I came into Sun actually through an acquisition of a startup called Cobalt Networks, built these little microservers. So that was my first taste of playing with systems and system management. And in fact, we built a product at Cobalt, which if you squint, looks a whole lot like Kubernetes for a single machine. I didn't realize that until well into the Kubernetes process, but I realized that the sort of the architecture poured it over and held really well. Sun was a big company, and by the time I joined, it was already sort of in trouble trying to figure out what its role was. Linux was eating away at the low end of Sun's product offering. And as often happens, 
if you let the thing eat away at the low end, the low end becomes the middle and the middle becomes the high. And pretty soon Linux was eating Sun's lunch and Sun didn't really know what to do with it. So I worked on Linux at Sun, but I wouldn't say that it was the most satisfying work because it was hard to see how it fit into the larger picture of what the company was doing or even what Linux was trying to do. If I understand the history correctly, in the 90s, Sun workstations were the de facto server to use for startups, right? Like there was some period of time where Sun workstations were the thing to use. Yeah. Sun workstations were the the only real thing for engineering. It was either Sun or SGI, really. And Sun servers was like, that's what you did for the internet. Right? Their, their old campaign was where the dot and .net, right? Sun was how you did everything. And Linux came along in the late 90s and became a really viable thing very quietly. Nobody really realized what it was doing. It was a one CPU machine. Sun would sell you these 100 core giant servers. And Linux came along and like, well, we can do one CPU. We can do two CPUs. We can do four CPUs. And before you knew it, it was like, you know, four CPUs is a lot of compute, actually, in a single server for the 90s. Like, put yourself in 99, 2000 timeframes. Linux could serve a lot of traffic and it was cheaper than Solaris and it was pretty much as reliable as Solaris in terms of the hardware support, right? And the x86 hardware was a whole lot cheaper than the Sun hardware. And so people made these trade-offs of like, like Solaris was a fantastic operating system. From an engineering point of view, it was just beautifully done, right? Really well executed software, but it was closed, it was expensive and it only ran on Sun's hardware. Sun tried to do this Solaris x86. They put it out and they took it away and then they put it back out and they open sourced it. And it was a big mess. They never committed to x86 as a platform because they thought their hardware was better. But x86 and Linux is the prototypical example of worse is better, right? Or good enough is good enough. The reason I bring up Sun is I think it's worth having historical context and historical reflection for how good we have it today for starting a company back in the 90s relative to today, you had this high upfront cost that actually kept a lot of people from starting companies. How would you compare the upfront cost of the pre-cloud early 90s or mid 90s, whenever Sun was the most uh, dominant, to what we have today? That's a great question. Really interesting thing to think about. If you were a startup, I I was at Cobalt, I was in the startup. And one of the things I had to do as part of the startup was help to run the website, right? And we literally ran our website on a server that was in our office connected by a T1 to, I don't even know what internet provider, but that was our internet connection. And when the server crashed or there was something wrong, I would go into the server room and go fix it. And the idea that anybody would do that today is laughable, right? You want a server, you just spin up a cloud instance, right? Or, or even less, right? You use a serverless or use an HTTP hosting site or whatever, and you have infinite scalability. You don't have to worry about, well, what happens if I have a sale or my, my product becomes really successful or somebody tweets about it? Not that Twitter existed back then, but if somebody caught wind of what we were doing and the load came in, we didn't have a story for how to scale that. So we had you know, an array of servers that was our internet service and we did it ourselves. And yeah, so it's sort of interesting that today that was thousands, tens of thousands of dollars that we had to spend to buy that equipment and maintain the T1. The T1s weren't cheap either. And then we had all these workstations that we had to provision that were really high-end engineering workstations where today I can just do a lot of work in the cloud really easily. The idea of a cloud top, right? 
so yeah, there was a ton of upfront investment. Was there a cloud top? Cloud, like putting your desktop in the cloud. Oh, sure. Right? Whether you're using a Google. Hey, by the way, you can see me. I've got a MacBook here recording the audio, and I've got a Chromebook where I do most of my preparation and work, and I'm gradually lifting and shifting as many workloads from my MacBook to my Chromebook. Absolutely. I mean, like what better example can I offer than like Slideware, right? Like Mac still has the, a corner on the market for building slides, right? But things like Google Slides becoming really viable. If you look around KubeCon today or this week, you'll see a lot of people who built their slides in Google Slides or other online slide software that you don't need a powerful local application to do anymore, right? And these things are free. You don't have to spend millions of dollars in licensing to get software that you used to have to buy. Yeah, okay. So that's on the SaaS side. Going back to the questions of infrastructure and the technology you need to build a startup, there was, like you said, the eating away of the proprietary machines and the proprietary operating systems with Linux and the LAMP stack. Then eventually we got to cloud. So I think cloud, from what I can tell, cloud was perhaps the steepest drop in the expenses for starting a company. But when did, and when and why did people move from Sun workstations to I guess Linux running on commodity hardware, that is the term that I use, but what is, I don't really even know what that means. I mean, put yourself again in the sort of the late nineties, early two thousands, you could buy a spark 20 workstation for a couple of thousand dollars. And it was a beautiful, powerful workstation built for engineering, right? It came with those big 21 inch CRTs and you know, the weight of like 8,000 pounds. And it was a great workstation, or you could go to Dell and you could buy an x86 machine for a thousand dollars and you could put Linux on it for free. Now there's the old statement of, you know, Linux is free if your time is worth nothing. Right. <laughs> but there was a lot of people out there, myself included, who figured out how to do Linux and realized it wasn't that awful. You just had to invest in it once. Right. So I figured out how to debug Linux and get it installed in, in machines. And I could turn around and take commodity hardware that was really fairly cheap for the time and build an equivalently powerful workstation to a sun for a quarter or, or a tenth of the cost. And when you start to add that up times 100 developers, times 1,000 developers, that's real money. And that's just at the workstation side, right? Now you talk about the servers. And again, very few people, even today, need the sort of web scale applications that the Googles and the Twitters have to deal with. And so for the vast majority of these customers, they didn't need what Sun called like the ultra enterprise servers, right? These these big thousand core capable scalable systems with light. And I forget what the interconnect was called at this point, but there were these giant refrigerator sized systems, right? But this is what Sun was selling. This is the scientific computing, the high performance computing. These machines were enormous and they were beautiful pieces of engineering. Nobody really needed them. This is a uh, classic 90-10 problem, right? Or... or 99.1 problem. Like 99% of users do not need what that is, but that makes you a ton of your revenue. So you spend all your engineering on that, mm -hmm. right? What we saw happen, what I saw happen from the inside was the Sun sales team had no reason to push their low end products because they weren't making as much money on them. They weren't making as much commission on those low end products. And so things like the Cobalt products that we brought in, there was a thousand dollar server and you could run 200 websites on a thousand dollar server. Why would Sun sell that when their, their commission was going to be pennies versus they put all their energy into an ultra enterprise 
account where they could sell one server a year for $20 million and make a giant cut. And that sort of culture of commissions and high-end sales and, and focus on the high-end and, and the, really the, the perfection, they missed the forest and they, for the trees. You joined Google in, I think it was 2004, and then 10 or 12 years later, you were one of the founding engineers of Kubernetes. Describe your role in the founding of Kubernetes. There's been a lot of noise about sort of the origin story around Kubernetes. There's a lot of sort of myth around sort of where it came from and how it began. From my perspective, what happened was we had a reorganization with inside Google. We had our technical infrastructure team, which ran Borg. That was where I was working. And we had our cloud team, which was running Google Cloud, which was very nascent at the time. And we got smushed together and I said, guys, go talk to each other. And we started having these regular meetings to talk about, well, what could we take from technical infrastructure into cloud? What would make a good product? What would, what would solve people's problems? And so the folks up in Seattle started to do this prototype of what eventually became Seven, which became Kubernetes. We down in Mountain View, Sunnyvale, were working on how do we take the ideas of Borg and turn them into a cloud product? Could I do Borg as a service? Right? That was one of the ideas that we were floating around. The original ideas that we had were very, very different from what Kubernetes ended up looking like today, but there was a few really core pieces that stuck. And when you started to glue these teams together, you realized there's a lot of experience between these two teams. The cloud team knew how to build cloud products and knew what was going on with the cloud space. The infrastructure team knew the history of Borg and where all the bodies were buried and how not to step on the same landmines. And so this sort of synthesis of these teams brought forth this idea of we can do this. And it, you know, we agreed very early on that it had to be open source. Right? It had to be not just open, but radically open, different than almost anything else. And we came out really aggressive. We took the prototype that these guys had put together and quickly turned it into something that we could show people. And obviously we couldn't brand it seven, so we came up with Kubernetes and showed it off at DockerCon really early. It was very skeletal. But from that day, people could see what it was up to. They, could, they got it. For a handful of people that came up to us afterwards and were like, I understand what you're doing with this and I want to be part of it. And that sort of lift just took the project. What I find very interesting about the Kubernetes history, and we've seen this with TensorFlow, we're seeing it with Istio, with Facebook, we saw it with React. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the React project at all, but when an open source project can clearly lay out its vision, even if it doesn't have the full technical underpinnings, it may even have substantially weaker technical underpinnings than the current market leaders. Like you look at Kubernetes versus Mesos when Kubernetes came out, Mesos was much further along in terms of something that was like ready to actually run production workloads, as, as I understand the history. But the fact that there was a clear vision, the fact that there was content, the fact that there was documentation, it put a stake in the ground for how dedicated Google was to making this vision a reality. And the cynical way of thinking about it is like, oh, it's like fake it till you make it. But the realistic mentality is that this is how you get buy-in 
from a gigantic fractured developer world. We don't live in the 90s anymore when software development is this provincial, you know, Linux ecosystem living across a couple forums. It's this enormous world where you have to evangelize with significant resources. That's really insightful. I agree completely. I do not in any way dispute that Mesos was technologically way ahead of Kubernetes at the time we launched Kubernetes. I mean, anything, a bunch of shell scripts was far ahead of Kubernetes <laughs> when we launched Kubernetes. And for a long time, a bunch of shell scripts was our biggest competitor in terms of orchestration solutions, right? Mesos was a- Literally, not just shell scripts, chef scripts, Ansible scripts. We, there was a survey that was done. It was like, what are you using for container orchestration? And it came out number one, this was, I think, OpenStack Summit a few years ago. It was number one was Kubernetes, number two, shell scripts dot 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 and mesos was in there somewhere and mm. and it was sort of funny we laughed at like a bunch of shell scripts like what is kubernetes at the, at the early days it was a bunch of shell scripts but the best technology doesn't always win mesos was a very big very powerful system that was focused on very big very powerful users and kubernetes sort of came along and started to eat its lunch from the bottom I recognize a pattern from my history here and i saw this sort of happening right away and i knew that the thing that eats the bottom guy's lunch is probably the guy who's going to win. Again, another case of sort of worse is better, where Kubernetes is not as fully formed as Mesos was at the beginning. But the fact that it was not fully formed is actually, I, I agree with you completely, the thing that got people hooked, right? Mm. We went to communities and said, look, we need help, mm. right? Here's, our, here's what we want to do with it. Here's our vision. Here's sort of our existence proof. We can talk about Borg. We published the Borg paper. You know, here's the things we did with Borg. And if you read the last page of the Borg paper, it's the things that we don't like about Borg, things, mistakes that we made, things that we want to change. And there's a forward reference to Kubernetes. And so it's like, we're going to try to fix a lot of these things in Kubernetes. People saw this and they, they realized we could jump in on this. We could have meaningful impact. We could be part of the community, not just somebody that Google takes patches from, but owners of the community. And I think it was a really critical point that when we made this thing open source, that we made it really clear to folks like Red Hat that you get full, you're, you are as much a project owner as we are. You have full access. We made Clayton Coleman committer on the project basically right away. And Clayton came in and very immediately demonstrated he's a smart guy who knows what's going on, has a ton of experience, has a very different perspective on things than the Google perspective, which has made the system so much more reliable, so much better. It's a different system than it would have been if Google had designed it by itself. And the fact that companies like Red Hat are so deeply committed to the success of Kubernetes is because they were able to get into it and be owners of it from the beginning. As time has gone on, Kubernetes has advanced far beyond the dog-eared napkin with a vision on it that it started as. Now you've got something that is running lots of production workloads. It's got an entire ecosystem around it. And you can kind of see... Google starting to lay out quite a futuristic vision for what the cloud could look like, where you have Knative and Gvisor and Cloud Run, and you can really see these things potentially fitting together in a way that makes cloud workloads run much differently than they do today. 
whatever is the furthest timestamp in the future that you can see clearly into, whether it's five years or 10 years, how are we going to, first of all, what is that timestamp? And how are cloud workloads going to be different at that point relative to today? So this is the Kubernetes five-year anniversary. So everybody wants to sort of look out five years. <laughs> and it's hard. You know, if you asked me five years ago where Kubernetes would be, I would not have said this, right? I would not have... You would have said something much further back, right? Like much, it's moving much faster than you anticipated. It right? is moving way faster than we could have planned for. We joked at the beginning that we had a crystal ball because we built Borg and we knew exactly what people are going to ask for. And we were largely correct. Where we missed the mark was they're asking for things way faster than we iterated on them through Borg, right? So it took Borg 10 years of, of evolution to figure out certain problems we've gotten to in three and four years within Kubernetes. And to some extent, we've, we've run out of crystal ball. Like people are asking for things that are just new and different. And to some sense, we're making things up as we go now, right? We're solving new problems as opposed to building on things that we already well understood. That's not exactly true. Like you picked on Knative and Istio. These are building on things that have been done in Google and they're like entirely separate projects because they're so big in scope themselves. So playing out five years, what do I think is going to be very different? I hope that Kubernetes proper isn't that exciting. I hope it's just an assumed piece of ubiquitous infrastructure that you can get anywhere from anyone. There's no real cost associated with it. It's the sort of thing you learn in school as how else would you run a distributed system? What I think will be interesting for cloud workloads will be the move up the stack. The more you can move up the stack, the better off you're going to be in general, right? The less you're coupled to your infrastructure, the less you understand what's going on below you, the more freedom you have to build better implementations. So things like Knative, I think are fantastic because it gives you a lot of the freedom of Kubernetes to build whatever container infrastructure you want to build, but it puts some limits on you and says, like, if you fit this pattern, we can do really cool stuff with you, right? So the API becomes, I'll send you a HTTP request, you'll send me an HTTP response. And if you can live with that contract, I can scale you up, scale you down, scale you to zero, do pay as you go, usage-based billing. There's amazing things you can do with a system like Knative. And so you push users up the stack. And you don't have to worry about the fact that it's Kubernetes or that it's using Istio or whatever else is going on beneath the covers. That's infrastructure. That's the new hardware. That's the thing that people don't want to have to learn. Serverless is the same vein in general, right? Whether that's functions or Knative style containers as a service or this sort of Kubernetes as a service thing that people have, have talked about and, and trying to build in various forms. And I think over the next five to 10 years, we'll see that just continue to get more and more abstract. But I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way. People will be able to focus on the things that they care about and not the things that they don't care about. Giving developers the freedom to not worry about infrastructure is amazingly freeing. Don't worry about what happens if the server crashes. That's fine. We'll handle it for you, right? So the Knative story, what I found interesting about that is I was unpacking it in some interviews I did with Knative people is it was very different than kind of the AWS serverless story or the Microsoft serverless story or the open source function as a service stories that people were trying to build on Kubernetes because the Knative vision is that there is no function as a service there is no container as a service. There is a gradient between those two things. And yet, when I... I use I use Firebase for a couple apps I'm building. 
on one of them, I use uh, Firebase Functions, which I know runs on on Google, and I think it's Google Cloud Functions under the surface. I hit a cold start with that. Why am I hitting a cold start on Google Cloud Functions if Google has the Knative secret sauce underneath? And you, I assume Knative, if all if your contract is just send an HTTP request, get an HTTP response. I assume you've solved the cold start problem somehow. Where is the magic? Why am I missing out on the magic? So it's a fair question. Like everything in the space where the technology is evolving, right? So just a minute ago, I said, if you decouple, then we can make better implementations, right? So the implementations of cloud functions will get better as the infrastructure gets better and your app doesn't need to worry about it, right? You're just going to get better. You're going to get better cold start time. You're going to get less cold starts and more warm starts. I don't know the details of exactly what would happen in this particular situation, but there are reasons that you could end up being cold started if you've been scaled down or whatever. As we get better at building those implementations, you will see those things go away. And and But your app didn't change, right? You don't have to recode your application to get these better behaviors, to get lack of cold starts, to get the scale to zeros. We didn't ask you to rewrite your application in order to get the pay for what you use sort of billing model, right? It's like, if you follow this contract, we, there's a million things we can do without having to call you, which I think is super powerful. So why did it happen in this case? I, I don't know. I'd be happy to look into it for you. No, 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 no. I wasn't trying to. I wasn't trying to, to go there. But like in terms of the K native stuff, what I'm just intrigued by is if you have implemented this internally somehow. Like if K native is the internal open source exposure of the API that you exposed to developers that are deploying applications to Borg and they can scale down to zero or maybe they can't scale down to zero and avoid the cold start problem. Maybe you have some config logic that like allows them to say, look, I always need to keep at least one instance of this up so that I can avoid the cold start. I guess what I'm trying to understand is how can you open source this perspective that there is no function as a service, there is no container as a service, there's a gradient between them, and eventually you're not going to have to worry about this cold start issue if it's not deployed in Google. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not deployed in Google Cloud yet, so how do you know that this is a solvable problem? So to be clear, what we have, I don't know how Firebase Functions is implemented, to be be clear, but with Cloud Functions, for example, is not exactly the same as the thing that we use inside Borg, right? It's different. It's built for slightly different use cases. We have ample usage of like App Engine inside Google, right? And App Engine has a somewhat even more opinionated model than Knative, right? It had these managed runtimes. At least App Engine Classic had these sort of very managed runtimes. And even with App Engine, you hit cold starts eventually, right? Because mm-hmm. if you don't take any traffic, you're going to hit cold starts, right? And you know, App Engine Classic has like something like a quadrillion users or something ridiculous. It's a very large number, and the vast majority of them take zero QPW, <laughs> like they don't take any queries ever. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to keep those things resident in memory if they're all in free tier and they literally serve no traffic. They take one query a month or something, and it's probably from a bot. And so for these sorts of applications, like the only way you can get the efficiency is to page them out effectively, right? Now, for the busier applications, there's no reason why we wouldn't have an application, have an instance running for you all the time, ready to go. So again, I I have no idea exactly. What what about the application type that it only gets a query? Maybe this is a rare application type. I just, I don't, I'm not realizing it. It only gets one query per month, but that query needs to be very low latency. I would 
guess that that's a pretty rare. It's a pretty rare. Okay. I'm not actually part of the App Engine team, so I have no idea what the control knobs are there. What we experience for a lot of these people is they're in the the free tier, right? They want to use this service, they want to serve their API, but they're not actually willing to pay anything for it. And so there's sort of a bounds on the quality of service that anybody could offer for that, right? I don't, I'm sure there's a way to say, I really need this to be low latency and like I'm willing to pay X dollars to keep it low latency. I don't know what the X is. That seems like a reasonable thing to offer if there's demand for it. I'm not a product person, so I have no idea if there's, if you're alone in this sort of thing or if there are millions of you just waiting to come out of the woodwork. (laughs) When I did this show about GVisor, a while ago, what I found interesting about it was, and maybe I'm, I'm totally mistaken about this, but actually, first of all, I guess I should ask you, how familiar are you with GVisor? How much? Medium. Medium? Okay. So I found it interesting because it seemed like it was potentially a layer that could be used to swap out Linux as the underlying operating system of a cloud provider, or it's at least an abstraction kind of gate between containers and an underlying Linux host operating system. Would you ever see it as desirable to swap out the underlying Linux operating system with like, is there a better operating system we could build for running modern server workloads? That's a tough one. Uh, Building an OS as fully featured as something like Linux is incredibly difficult. I mean, look at the thousands and thousands of human hours that have been poured into, I mean, thousands is the wrong order of magnitude, hundreds of thousands of of human hours that have been poured into Linux and the development of it. Um, So to say casually that I could replace it for general purpose applications is pretty daunting. GVisor is an implementation of the Linux syscall API, right? So in that sense, it's sort of an OS of its own, but we didn't have to figure out what that API was going to be. We, we know what it is. It's Linux, right? And what we have to figure out is what those APIs mean in terms of a security context. And a ton of what GVisor does, and one of the reasons that it's as lightweight as it is, is it passes through a bunch of stuff to the underlying OS, right? It doesn't have to implement a full, you know, a, a comprehension of everything that's going on. Like it doesn't have hardware drivers, right? Like, which is three quarters of what the Linux code base is. So could we replace Linux with something else? Yeah, probably, but I don't think we'd want to build a, I don't think we'd want GVisor to be a conversion layer between say Linux and Windows or some, Windows is sort of the the canonical other OS example, but having it be a translation layer, I think would be a disaster. The fact that GVisor can pass through so much of it is what makes it a viable thing. So you worked with Joe and Craig and Brendan and a bunch of other people on the foundations of Kubernetes. What kept you at Google working on Kubernetes specifically? You you could have gone to to a different company and spread the Kubernetes love or, you know, you could have started a company around Kubernetes. What kept you at Google? What was it specifically about Google? I it's a great question. It's one I think about a lot. I love working at Google. I think the people that I work with are phenomenal, which is world-class people. And at the end of the day, that's the thing that drives me the most. Joe and Craig are also fantastic people. Geographically, they were very, they were up in Seattle. We were down in in Mountain View, Sunnyvale. And so I didn't get nearly as much day-to-day FaceTime with them, right? So the coupling that I had with those guys was, was certainly lower than the people I have in my local office. And that's just, I think, a truth of distributed development, right? That's not to say that I like them any less, but when they departed to go do their thing, like 
good for them. That's great. I appreciate the enthusiasm there. The project would absolutely not be what it is without their input. Not their input. Their, it is their brainchild, right? And Brendan included. And they chose to go other directions for whatever reasons they had. Joe and Craig had worked on GCE beforehand, the Google, Google Compute Engine, which became Google Cloud Platform, which was an incredibly ambitious project, right? It was flying in the face of everything that Google knew how to do, right? And I wasn't part of that project, but from actually as the other side of it, as the people in Borg, where they came to us with feature requests all the time, I can only imagine how challenging that project was. And so they built sort of a, a camaraderie and a rapport through Wait, that. So the, so the Google Cloud folks would come to the Borg folks with feature requests? Oh, yeah. All the time. And the Borg folks, of course, were very busy. Borg's actually a really small team. And they got the same answer from us that we got, the Kubernetes team got from Cloud initially, which was, who are you? Go away. They wanted a million things out of Borg so that they could build VMs in an efficient way. And at the beginning, we, we didn't know if this was going to be a thing. We didn't know how much resources to pour into that project. You know, like the Borglet team was, was 15 people. Do I have two people that I can carve off to go work on cloud? Not really. So that's a pretty interesting problem that you just highlighted, which is basically cloud users want or perhaps need VMs. Google doesn't run VMs. They just run containers on bare metal, right? And so you have to either... But why is it okay? So and, and so Google Borg is just not made to run virtualized workloads. And well, it, it is now. It is now. Okay. I mean, so interesting. We we had to adapt Borg. Borg made a lot of assumptions about what a Borg job was going to do, and when you want to run a VM, those assumptions are not always right. And so we had to build things into Borg that made it possible to run VMs efficiently, right? A great example was network interfaces, right? We're not going to pass through the VM network into the physical network. There's this Andromeda SDN layer in between. So how do I get an application to be part of the Andromeda network? From a Borg point of view, that's an app problem. You know, you go fix it in your application. From the application point of view, that's way more privileged than I want to give the VM process. Mm -hmm. And they wanted Borg to be able to sort of link the, the two ends of the pipe together for them. And so we had to build that sort of a capability into Borg specifically for these sort of VM use cases. And that's just like one. There's a, there's a thousand of these. How did they finally get somebody to pick up that ticket? I mean, it's not that it's a ticket. Like we have organizational <laughs> quarterly goal planning and we talk about, is this important to the business? Why is it important? You know, executives talk to executives and they share roadmaps and vision. And I mentioned earlier the reorganization. Part of the fact that we got reorg was to stop some of the tension between these teams who needed wow. a lot of the same things, but we ended up building them in two different ways because... What the cloud team needed to build, they had to build on top of the cloud stack. And what the Borg team needed, they built on the Borg stack. And so there was a, you know, pieces of infrastructure that we didn't need to be replicating. And so this reorg you know, that, that ended up fostering the idea of Kubernetes was really pretty critical to the, the success of the organizations. I just did this series of shows on Facebook. And what was interesting about them was Facebook almost missed mobile. Like there was a period of time where they were just ignoring mobile. And then all of a sudden they realized, oh my God, we're in the middle of a platform shift. It's very interesting that sometimes the technology companies that you would presume to be most in the know take a while to pick up on something. Microsoft didn't see the cloud for a while. Google didn't see the cloud for a while. 
why was that? Or did Google even see the opportunity and it was just like, we've got other things we're working on. We're like working on Gmail and stuff. We're opting out of the cloud for a while. I think it's closer to the, the latter. Like yeah. there's a million things happening all the time. Nobody knows what's going to be important. And you can't, even at a, a company the scale of Google, you can't pick up a dozen engineers and just say, go explore this thing because <laughs> yeah. it might be important. Now, obviously, some people are always paying attention. So, you know, guys like Joe and Craig were paying attention to what Amazon and Microsoft were doing with cloud. And they were like, this is a big deal. Like, guys, we should be part of this. We, we need a cloud product. And in some cases, through force of will, they, they made that happen. Other places, we've made bets on things and they've been wrong. Right. And that's okay. We tried to open source our internal container technology just before the time that Docker came out. We called it, let me contain that for you. And it turned out that nobody cares. Like it didn't matter because Docker had a very different way of doing things. And I'll be honest, I initially looked at the first version of Docker when it came out and I went, eh, who cares? It's a poor man's version of what we can do already inside Google. So I don't think this technology really matters to Google. I wasn't yet working within the cloud product, customer facing external world. I was working on inside Google and inside Google, Docker is still not widely adopted. It's not really possible in the Borg system because Borg has a very different perspective on things, but it just didn't matter, right? Boy, was I wrong, right? And when I, when I started to look at it from the, how would I take this and make it available to the outside world? Suddenly it was like, oh, well, yeah, Docker seems like an obvious starting point. Their UX was so much, I don't say better. It's very different from what Borg, no, I'll say better. It's Great better logo also. <laughs> very cute. The Docker user experience comes at it from such a different perspective than Borg. And we always joke inside Google that you know everything we build inside Google is three quarters finished because we never put the plaster on the walls. Everything is exposed wiring and open rafters, right? Because Googlers can tolerate that because they have my phone number if they have a problem. That's just not true for the outside world. And so Docker came along with plastered walls and paint and beautiful curtains and said, here's a UX for how you run a container. And it, they nailed it. They got to the heart of what made developers excited. And when you combine that with this sort of larger experience that you can get from a system like Kubernetes and you, and you say like developers are happy, administrators are happy. That's a blend that doesn't happen that often. I also think it's hilarious that Google saw the future way too early with App Engine. Like App Engine, you look at that now, you're like, that's the way that people want to run infrastructure, basically. Too bad Google was 12 years early. But I think we already did a show on App Engine. I got to, you know, you got to close off. You got somewhere to be. I want to ask you one more question. So I've been to KubeCon. I've been to Google Cloud Next. I've been to Google I.O. And across these different conferences, I feel like KubeCon is the most kind of in the past, like refactoring older applications. Google Cloud Next is sort of like a futuristic version of the present. And then Google I.O. is like in the distant future. You know, it's like this panorama of different places in time. Do you get that sense also? That's an interesting perspective. I've never actually been to Google I.O. It's really hard for Googlers to get into I.O. There are so many limited, so limited spots to get in that unless you're working in one of those product areas, there's really a very low chance that you'll be able to go. I would love to go to Google I.O. sometime I've just never had an opportunity. I've never worked on one of those projects. So I, I get the announcements at the same time everybody else does. You know, Modulo, whatever they've told us internally, it's an interesting characterization. I wouldn't say that KubeCon is really about the past. I mean, it is, I think it's about pushing forward. And 
you know, Google Next, we spend a lot of time talking about Anthos, right? Anthos is our hybrid multi-cloud solution from Google Cloud. It's Kubernetes. But who's the user base for Anthos? It's really enterprise customers who have one leg in the past, whether that's in their own data centers, their monolithic applications, their VMs, whatever. Like the reality is those things exist and they're not going anywhere anytime soon. And I wouldn't say that that's a futuristic vision any more than Kubernetes is. It's like a helping hand is how I would rather see it. IO, I love the I love the things that come out of IO because I love gadgets and I love the future looking stuff. And I'm always the first one in line to buy the next Google Assistant, whatever technology is out this, this year. And I'm trying to find an excuse to buy a new phone. But it's an interesting characterization. I can see how people would look at these three events and see very different themes. And it is, it's definitely true. The things that I want to talk about here at KubeCon are different than the things I want to talk about at Next. Right. It's a different customer. It's a different user. Are there any interesting elements of Google infrastructure that you would like to see in the open cloud, but they're hard to port to the open cloud model that we have today? Well, wow, that's an interesting question. The things I'm an infrastructure nerd. So the things that excite me most about Google and doing things in Google is a lot of the infrastructure. Little details, little integrations like monitoring, right? When I write a, a job, a Borg job for Google, first of all, my C++ program or whatever doesn't call main, it calls Google main. And Google main sets up a bunch of stuff. And that includes the RPC network and all these cool look-asides for on-the-fly rate limiting and access control and all these neat things that I don't have to do in my application. In some sense, you get that with Istio. On the monitoring side, you get all these really cool metrics out of the box. All the libraries that I'm using for my Google application are already instrumented. So the minute I turn on my application, I can literally write my Hello World app and I go look at a URL of that app and it's got hundreds of metrics that are collecting information about what my application is doing, how often it calls this, how many bytes of log line have I written, those sorts of like really fine-grained metrics. And those are all being collected automatically. I didn't do anything. They're automatically being ingested into the logging system. They're automatically being merged with all my Borg information. So I can tell at this point in time, I was doing this many bytes per second of logging and my CPU usage was X and my memory usage was Y. And all these things are just automatic, right? And I can correlate my logging versus my CPU. I'm picking on logging because it's a trivial thing, but it's instrumented, right? And I can correlate these things just automatically out of the box. They're automatically retained for a short but reasonable amount of time. And I can just go to the monitoring dashboards and start graphing right away. And I didn't have to configure it. I didn't have to export anything. I didn't have to set up an ingestion. I don't have to wait for you know hours for it to kick alive. It's just there from the minute I run Hello World. So I'd love to see that level of automagicness continue to, to go through Kubernetes. It's, you know, Istio is fantastic in that you get a lot of these cool network integrations. It's not as seamless as it needs to be. The Prometheus is a fantastic piece of software. It's not as automatic as it needs to be. Instrumentation across libraries, things like open census, open tracing, those things are not as ubiquitous as they need to be. And as we get more and more of this, as we build out this ecosystem of cloud native, I'm using quotey fingers, that these things become more and more pervasive. And then you can get that automatic. Yeah, that's inspiring. I guess that is cloud native. I was, at first, as you were saying, I was like, that's language native. But then I realized, no, actually, you need the cloud to be able to have the guarantees of 
having a place to throw all this instrumentation and data. It's not, it's not even language specific. I don't care if you write in Python or Ruby right. or Go, you can export the same metrics and get the same tracing mm-hmm. all ingested into the same systems and you can produce the same results. Tim Hawken, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Wow.